Matthew 17, and we're looking at verse 4. In particular, though we'll be looking at the passage we have read already today. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias, or Elijah. And with the Word of God open before us, we'll bow together in prayer. There was some debate as to whether I was going to be here or not today, given my mom's illness. And I had a number of people volunteer that they would help out if necessary, and I do appreciate that. But I was at the men's prayer meeting and went on Friday night, and Morris just closing, and I left as he was praying, but he made mention of this text that had been in my mind. Lord, it is good for us to be here. And I thought, well, that seals it. I'll be coming. Uh, Lord's Day, God willing, I will be here. And so we are here and glad to be here and trust the Word of God will have an impact upon all of our hearts today. It is good for us to be here. And let's bow together in further prayer. Our Heavenly Father and gracious Lord, we thank Thee that we're found in Thy presence under the sound of the precious Word of life. We praise Thee that Thy Word is truth. We know from beginning to end that is what it is. And the world is lying in wickedness today and wallowing in its wickedness and running around sometimes quite literally staggering like a drunken man, looking for satisfaction here, there, and everywhere, wondering, why am I even here? What is the purpose in living? And from opened eyes, there's very little real purpose whenever we're living for the devil and sin and shame and headed for hell. That's a terrible thing, beyond words could ever describe. But we thank Thee for the words of that chorus writer when he talked about the Lord Jesus and said, He is my reason for living. He is my everything. Lord, we pray that that's exactly how we will feel about Thee today. We thank Thee for the power of this hymn that we have just sung. Have you read the story of that cross where Jesus bled and died? He died an atoning death for Thee. And we thank Thee for how personal and pointed that hymn is. May it be the testimony of all of our hearts. May everyone here and those tuned in online, may each and every one be able to say, 
Yes, I praise Him from the depths of my soul, for I know that He died an atoning death for me. Grant us that spirit of gratitude and thanksgiving even as we continue in this service here today. We pray in Jesus' name and to His glory. Amen. Was the name of Reverend A. L. R. Foote. The minister that came and ministered in the Scottish town of Brecon for quite some considerable time, and he looked at the passage that we have turned to today, Matthew chapter 17, and he said about this passage, of all the incidents in the life of our Savior, the transfiguration is externally or outwardly at least the most sublime and impressive. The whole picture from first to last is crowded with scenes of surpassing interest and grandeur. Now, Reverend Foote wouldn't be the kind of character you'd choose to go toe-to-toe with a debate concerning any subject, because he was a very skilled debater. He became the first pastor of the secession church in Brecon. That was one that pulled away from the compromised church, and he preached in the West Free Church in that town of Brecon. But seriously, despite the thought about debating, disputing, and all of that, I agree totally with what he said, because he's exactly right. Because right here in the record that we have in Matthew 17, our Lord is still wearing the form and the clothes of the sufferer. He is still walking in the deep valley of His humiliation, and He's coming with the looming specter of the cross in front of him. It's drawing very near. And he withdraws himself for a time from the chaos of the day, and he separates as well three of those disciples of his out of the twelve that accompany him, and he brings them with him. He ascends a high mountain, he kneels down, and he prays. Of course, those three privileged disciples, they unite with him in sweet communion with God the Father, and in strong supplications, and they really engage in prayer as well. No, they don't. Their eyes are heavy. Their bodies are wearied as a result of the fatigues of the day. They slump to the earth. They drowse and fall asleep. But not for long. For suddenly, their slumber is shattered by a strange, unearthly light that begins to luminous in front of their eyelids. And it shattered further when they wake up to a scene of brilliant, breathtaking, overpowering glory. What's happened, they're asking themselves. Is it a dream, a trance, or a figment of our imagination? What is going on here? It's none of those things. The Lord, whom they left praying is now before their dazzled eyes on that mountain. Those two Old Testament bulwarks, Moses and Elijah, they have appeared as well along with him, and they're clothed in garments radiating light. 
And our Savior there, the garment he wears is whiter, we're told, by Mark 9 and 3, whiter than any earthly fuller could have whitened them. And that fuller would have been one who cleanses and whitens cloth. And there in front of their eyes, this transfigured Savior stands radiant with supernatural glory. What a sight. This was an entirely unique scene, for this was the only occasion when the Lord raised that mysterious veil which curtained and concealed the full-orbed glory of His Godhead. That time when He drew back the cloak of that perfect humanity that He wore and gave a glimpse It's actually going in review here of that glory that he had way back in eternity past that he shared with the Father before this world was. They saw that that day. And not only is it in review, but it's a preview of that glory which he is clothed with at this moment in time in the Father's house. And of that glory in which One day he's returning to this earth. So when you think about it, this was a tremendous spectacle for those disciples to view that day, a totally thrilling incident. And I quickly add, it's an event that those who are believers today in the Lord Jesus, we can delve into and glean much vital, soul-stirring, heartwarming truth from. When we capture the incident, I think we'll be saying like Peter, Lord, it is good for us to be here. And we'll say that in the best and in the highest sense of those words, it is good for us to be here. Let me suggest, first of all, it is good for us to be here, for here we see the best of sights. That's the first thing. Here we see the best of sights. Look at Matthew 17, verse 1 and verse 2. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. No wonder those disciples were amazed, astounded, and admiringly and adoringly gazed upon Christ because they had never seen Him in this form before. They'd been following, as we know, for three years, attending Him every day, going along with His ministry had been present when he performed many, many miracles. And although they listened to him preach the most powerful sermons ever uttered, they were only really familiar with the features of our Lord's humiliation. That face of his furled with the lines of sorrow, With the burden of multitudes, they knew that face of his so dark, with the constant shadow of grief and of sadness, with the cross coming towards him, they knew about that face. But to see that same countenance, now 
beaming with a stream celestial splendor, brighter than the sun ever shone in its strength. That's new to him. That's a novel thing. That's a magnificent sight. And how privileged they were. And when he comes to write about it, and reflects back on what happened this day in Matthew 17, Peter, in his second general epistle in 2 Peter 1 and 16, he says, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. And the word majesty is that meaning mighty power and splendor. We saw it with our eyes, and Peter is surely saying there, we were privileged with seeing the best of sights. But let me make it plain. To see Christ is the burning ambition and the blessed desire of every true child of God. If you're a Christian today, that's what you'll want to witness. Lord, I want to see Jesus. You remember the Greeks that came to worship at the feast in Jerusalem that we read about in John 12 and 21, and they came and they had one burning passion in their heart and minds, sir, we would see Jesus. That's the craving of our souls, and may it continue to be and increasingly become that craving throughout this year of 2024. A Sunday school was taking place one Lord's Day afternoon. And they were going through what they'd learned from the previous week and what they'd done as homework and all of that. And a lad was asked to recite what he had learned during the week. And he said, having recited that, he said this, Sir, we would see Jesus. And that teacher was smitten in his conscience. And he knew full well that I have given my class brilliant lessons on the creation of the world and the fall of man and the bondage of the children of Israel in the land of Egypt. And I've talked about the Red Sea and I've talked about David and Goliath and I've talked about Daniel in the lion's den, many similar subjects. But he had said he knew little about Christ. And he looked at the young fellow who had spoken the words then he scanned round the faces of the others in the class, and instead of using the lesson he had brought that day and prepared for them, he spoke earnestly to the lads on this request that that young lad had made, and he did simply and opportunely, and he spoke with such yearning for their souls that those lads listened as they'd never listened before. And they knew the Master's presence is in the midst. And you can check it out in verse 8 here of the chapter. In Matthew 17, and what do we read there? And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And whether it's Sunday school that we're teaching or preaching from pulpits, ministering to the hearts of people, it would be best if we took those messages and sermons and lessons that are deficient in Christ and put them back on the shelf and said, we are going to preach Jesus only. Of course, we do see Him today in His grace through the eye of faith. 
We know that when we open the Scriptures in this blessed book, He is filling every page. That's why some have written books like Seeing Christ in All the Scriptures, and we do see Him here all through the book. Glimpses of His character, evidences of His love, tokens of His grace, signs of His strength, and those sights, when we get them, they cheer our hearts and they ignite our spirits. But to go even beyond that, to see Him as the disciples did this day on the holy mount, to catch a sight of Him in His splendor, and to do it for a far longer period even than they were privileged to behold Him. And you know something? We shall. When the believer leaves this life, we shall see Him. We will see Him then with these eyes in His glory. That fired the heart of Job, and so he wrote in Job 19, 26, and 20, 25, and 26, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Isaiah was confident he would get the same glorious vision. And so in the 33rd chapter of his prophecy, and the 17th verse, he cries out, Thine eyes shall see the King in His beauty. And John, in 1 John 3 and verse 2, he thrills our hearts with this prospect of seeing Christ when he says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. The heavens shall glow with splendor, but brighter far than they. The saints shall shine in glory as Christ shall them array, and then better still, the beauty of the Savior shall dazzle every eye in that crowning day that's coming by and by. Are you looking forward to that? Is your life geared towards that? Are you living in earnest expectation of this blessed day? When face to face, oh blissful moment, face to face, to see and know, face to face with my Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who loves me so, and as the hymn letter goes on to say, face to face in all His glory, I shall see him by and by. Let me tell you of a man who lived in constant and joyous anticipation of that day. He was an old, radiant, fiery Methodist preacher by the name of Peter Mackenzie. And they were taking him around Madame Tussaud's waxworks in London on one occasion. And they came to an object, and the guide stopped the group, and the guide said, Now, this is the chair in which Voltaire sat and he wrote out his atheistic blasphemies. Is that the chair? asked Peter. And then without asking permission, he stepped over the cord, he sat down on that chair, and he sang as only a real believer could, Jesus shall reign. Where'er the sun doth his successive journeys run, his kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wean no more. And what a moment it promises to be. What a moment it most definitely shall be 
when we can look away from the dismal and dismaying and depressing scenes that we're seeing all the time in this sin-strewn, broken earth, and we can look up and up and up into the brilliant face of this Jesus who's coming in awesome glory and tremendous power with all the crowns of heaven upon his head. What a day! When our eyes shall focus upon the person of the returning Lord Jesus Christ and see the glory of the slain, but now living and conquering Lamb. On that day, if you're a child of His love, your voice and mine will be blended, and we'll be singing in hearty unison as we notice Him descending the sky. We'll be singing with Solomon in the Song of Solomon 5 in the verse 10 and 16, This is my beloved. He's the chiefest among ten thousand. Yea, he is altogether lovely. We'll sing with David in 2 Samuel 23 and verse 5. He is all my salvation and all my desire. And with Asaph, another psalmist, in Psalm 73 and 25, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there's none upon earth that I desire beside thee. I think we're all familiar with the hymn written by Mrs. Anne Cousins. But what she wrote was based upon the life and the ministry of the covenanting Scottish preacher Samuel Rutherford. And it contains this verse, I've wrestled on towards heaven against storm and wind and tide, just like a weary traveler that leaneth on his guide amid the shades of evening. When sinks life's glimmering sand, I see the glory dawning in Emmanuel's land. And to see the Lamb, who is all the glory of Emmanuel's land, how magnificent will that be? This is the best sight of all. And so with Peter, on this holy mount, can we not say, it is good for us to be here, for here we see the best of sights. Then think, secondly, it is good for us to be here, not only because here we see the best of sights, but here we share the best of society. Here we share the best of society, along with Christ in the Mount of Transfiguration, with Moses, we have Elijah. Why these two? What purpose were these two here for? Well, the commentators come up with a lot of suggestions and speculations, and some of the suggestions and speculations, they are questionable, some are incredible, some might be even abysmal. But I think there are a number of answers why it was Moses and Elijah who were found here with Christ. They were here to acknowledge Christ's performance. Moses, the giver of the law, Elijah, who was a zealous prophet of God, was the guardian of the law. They are underlining the truth of Jesus' claim made in Matthew 5 and 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So they're acknowledging he has upheld all of Scripture, the law and the prophets. They take part in affirming his person that he was indeed the Son of God and God the Son, deity incarnate, Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets. 
The entire Old Testament is called in to witness to the Godhead of Jesus here. It was them, Moses and Elijah as well, to assist Christ's passion. They came to comfort, they came to encourage Him, as had the angels before and would later as well, for that grueling and grisly death that lay just around the corner. Moses and Elijah were there to applaud Christ's purpose, to applaud His purpose. These two men of the law, Moses and Elijah, present with Jesus Christ, who is the King of grace. What do we read in John 1 and 17? For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. In other words, without Christ, we would not have salvation. We would know we were sinners, but there wouldn't be a way out. There'd be no rescue. Ebenezer and Ralph Erskine Two Scottish brothers, two preachers, ministered again in the Succession Church. And years ago, I was in the evangelical bookshop in Belfast, along with one of the students then. I was a student too, Tony DiGiorno. He went on to preach and still preaches in Barry, in Canada. And I knew that Ralph Erskine had published a lot of material, and it's been republished again since. But Ebenezer. He was a better preacher by far of the two, but he hadn't put much in writing. And Tony DiGiuro bent down and he pulled out this old leather-bound volume out of one of the shelves in the evangelical bookshop back in the second hand, as it was back then at the back of the shop. And he said to me, mm, Ebenezer Erskine, never heard of him. Have you heard of him? Is this any good? And I felt like breaking the law. And telling him, no, that book's useless, but look at the state of it. I mean, it's falling apart. The mouse had sort of gouged a bit of a hole on the top of it, didn't affect the print. Put it back, Tony, you'll never use that. I had been looking for something by Ebenezer Erskine for years. I'm still looking. I've never seen another book published by him anywhere. And Tony's preaching merrily away at Ebenezer Erskine over in Canada, I'm sure. But Erskine said, this law of works or commandments requires and exacts of you what is impossible as a term or condition of life, and that is a perfect and sinless obedience. I and you cannot provide that. Sinless, perfect obedience, it's not in us. That's why Jesus died. That's why he came, because he alone could give what God demanded on Calvary, that sinless and that perfect obedience. And these two men, Moses and Elijah, they're representing here the best, the most select company that those disciples could ever have been favored with, next to the person, of course, of God himself. And notice, God was there. God the Father was there. Didn't he say... In Matthew 17 and verse 5, this is my beloved Son. Hear ye Him. What select company those disciples enjoyed on that holy mount. Absolutely awesome. 
But let's remember, when you and I come to the house of God or when we entertain fellow believers in our home, we're in the best, we're in the most selective company then. For if there's one place on this earth where we can be sure of meeting with the best of society, those termed in the Bible as the salt of the earth, then it's that place where the people of God assemble together. It's why we should be in the Lord's house, in our position, on the Lord's day. And if we are remotely able, not sitting at home, watching online, but here in presence, in the house of God. Robert Jeffrey said, Caledonian Road Church in Glasgow, he said, here are gathered those who were the fruit of Christ's bloody passion, the seed of a soul to veal. That was Moses, that was Elijah, that was Peter, James, and John. They all qualified for that, as do we if we know the Lord. Once they were the enemies of God and far from Christ, now they are the friends of God and the intimates of Christ. He says as well, redeemed by His blood and regenerated by His Spirit, they have been made partakers of a new, of a divine nature. He has set them apart for Himself. He has had them sanctified as his peculiar people and sealed as his own holy heritage. Where will you meet with such society? I granted, I know I'm not foolish. We do have our differences, and we have our strange little quirks, and we have our weird notions, and we have our varied personalities, and sometimes it's not just iron sharpening iron, but there's a lot of sparks that are coming between us. But when it comes down to it, and when these more minor things are overlooked and accepted or resolved, we can pour out our hearts to each other. We can testify of the goodness of Jesus Christ during our trials to one another. We can glory in His person. We can share our sorrows and successes with our fellow believers, with those of like precious faith. And we wouldn't dare dream ever being as frank with those who are worldlings. Or at least we shouldn't. And all of this is testimony to the fact that's enshrined in that hymn, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. The hymn was written by Dr. John Fawcett. He was a pastor of a poor, small Baptist congregation at Waynesgate in Yorkshire. His salary was 25 pounds a year. It was completely inadequate. And so he accepted a call to a large, influential Baptist church in the city of London, preached his farewell sermon in Yorkshire, and he was loading his belongings to wagons for removal to the capital city when sorrowing members of his little congregation, showing deepest affection and grief, they pleaded with him not to leave them. The pastor and his wife were so overcome that they sat down and wept. Oh, John, John, I can't bear this, his poor wife cried. And being convinced the Lord's hand was in the circumstances, that good man said, we shall not go. And they stayed with those poor people, and he penned this hymn to commemorate that day. They proved the loving fellowship of God's saints was more to be desired than more money or more physical comforts. They conclude the hymn, When We Asunder Part. It gives us inward pain, but we shall still be joined in heart and hope to meet again. 
And how true that is. We shall, all of us, depart this life. We shall sorrow over the loss of each other. That's for sure we are doing that. But we shall meet again if we are saved in the glory. Will we recognize one another then? That's a question many people ask. Somebody asked John Evans, an old Welsh minister, that question, do you think we'll know one another in heaven? He was rather blunt but accurate in the way he responded. He said, to be sure we shall. Do you think we'll be greater fools then than we are here? Yes, we shall know one another. Peter, James, and John recognized Moses and Elijah here. Something else. We shall stand shoulder to shoulder with one another, gazing upon God's red lamb and praising, because I read in Revelation 5, 11 to 13, what we'll do there. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the number of them... 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands sang with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. What a joy to be there. What a delight to be together there. So in Matthew 17, the lessons are obvious. It is good for us to be here, for here we see the best of sights. It is good for us to be here, for here we share the best of society. It is good for us to be here because here we study the best of subjects. Here we study the best of subjects. When Moses and Elijah met with Christ on that mount where he was to be transfigured, we read in Matthew 17 and 3, And behold, there appeared unto him Moses and Elias talking with him. Talking with him. Question, what did he talk about? What was the substance of this mysterious speech. What was and what could be the engrossing theme of this exciting time? Did he talk about the sad state of the earth all around him? Did he talk about Christ's temporary glory that he was showing just now but wouldn't when he came down from the mount? Did he talk about the power that he would have and he would sway when he would reign over all the peoples of the earth? No, no, no. Luke gives us the answer. In chapter 9, and the verse 30 and 31 of his gospel, and Luke tells us, And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake off his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. They talked about his decease. The original word means his exodus or deliverance, and the decease of Christ, his death on Calvary, was all of that. His death on the cross brought my exodus, secured my deliverance from the bondage of sin and from the devil. What a theme they talked about. And they talked about that decease which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. 
And the word accomplish means to carry into effect. To bring to pass, as in the prophecies of the Old Testament, and to ratify. It also means to complete. This is such a fool word. Look at the meaning. To fill to the brim so that nothing shall be wanting to the full measure. He'll do it all and do it perfectly and do it completely by His death. What a theme they talked about. W.A. Odgen said, "'Tis the grandest theme through the ages rung, Tis the grandest theme for a mortal tongue. Tis the grandest theme this old world ever sung. Our God is able to deliver thee. And somebody has remarked, it must be obvious surely to all candid Bible readers, though too many seem to have missed it, how much prominence is assigned to the death of Christ. From the beginning to the end of the sacred volume, he went on to say, the Old Testament is full of it. The types and sacrifices of the law pointed to it, and the predictions of the prophets pointed to a Messiah suffering and dying for the sins of the people. And what was but dimly foreshadowed in the Old Testament has been fully revealed in the new, in the Gospels and Epistles, the death of Christ is the leading theme. But bring yourself up the holy mount and join in that conversation. They're speaking of Christ's decease. What would Moses be bringing to that conversation? Wouldn't he be talking about the Passover lamb that Christ was now going to become? Wouldn't he be talking about the tree that was cut down for healing in the waters of Marah? They were bitter. They became sweet, Exodus chapter 15. Wouldn't he be talking about the tabernacle that in all of its particulars pictured Jesus Christ, what a full theme that would have been. Maybe Elijah would have been thinking, well, from the earliest prophets, and including David in Psalm 22, how the Messiah was cut off right through to Isaiah in Isaiah 53, but he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. What a conversation went on as they talked about his decease that he would accomplish at Jerusalem. Absolutely marvelous. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, read your four Gospels and calculate in terms of proportion the amount of space given to our Lord's death. See how we're given every detail. In fact, as someone once pointed out, it is so graphic and detailed, we could almost hear the sound of the hammer knocking the nails into his hands and into his feet. But why? Why this prominence? Why their dilation upon this grand subject? Why did they converse with Jesus on that mount about the cross? And why is the death and the blood and the cross and the sacrifice of Jesus the leading subject of every part of the Scriptures? Why is it like that? Simple answer. It is most vital. The eternal design of God is exactly this. Without the work of the cross, there would be no gospel, no salvation, 
new entrance into heaven for any of us. What a central, crucial, critical subject the decease of Christ really is. How we should preach it. Bishop J.C. Ryle, first Protestant bishop in Liverpool, said, Let others hold forth the terrors of hell and the joys of heaven. Let others wrench their congregations with teachings about the sacraments and the church. Give me the cross of Christ. This is the only lever, Ryle said, which has ever turned the world upside down hitherto and made men forsake their sins. He went on to say, never was there a minister who did much for the conversions of souls who did not dwell much on Christ crucified, Luther, Rutherford, Whitfield, McShane, but almost eminent preachers of the cross. This is the preaching which the Holy Ghost delights to bless. He loves to honor those who honor the cross, which is why we preach Christ crucified. In that death, is bound up all of our hope and all of our happiness for time and for eternity. That death was the ransom payment that secured our deliverance, our exodus from the curse of sin and from the woe of hell. That sacrifice of blood procured for me and you the favor of God, a title to eternal life, and the right to see Jesus face to face in all of his risen glory. And should we not speak of it? Should we not sing of it? Most certainly, for this is the best of subjects. From this Mount of Transfiguration, we learn it is good for us to be here. For here, number one, we see the best of sights, Jesus only. We share the best of society, our Lord and His people. We study the best of subjects, his decease that he did accomplish in Jerusalem. What more? What more could we ask for? This is a blessed place. This is a blessed privilege indeed. And as we walk on by God's grace and help through 2024 and for as long as God allows us, let's be able to say as the word is opened, as Christ is preached, as our hearts are challenged, it is good for us to be here for our good and for Jesus' glory.